0: Hi there, and welcome to another Rossler podcast from the 24th annual ANZIC CTG meeting held in the beautiful town of Noosa Heads. Platelets are an essential component of the resuscitation of bleeding patients. However, they have many logistical limitations, including a short shelf life and a limited supply. Could alternative forms such as cryopreserved platelets prove the difference? Dr Michael Reid is an intensivist anaesthetist and a researcher from the University of Queensland, the Australian Defence Force, and the ANZICS Research Centre. And he joins me today to talk about the CLIP2 study. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Todd.
0: Michael, tell us about cryopreserved platelets.
1: Well, cryopreserved or or frozen platelets uh, are a technology that were invented in the 1970s by Dr. Uh, Valeri, Dr. Robert Valeri, who was a U.S. Navy uh, uh, physician uh, who recognised the need on uh, the U.S. uh, Naval hospital ships and and, and aircraft carriers that have a a large medical facility uh, to be able to provide uh, blood products to the many thousands of uh, sailors on, on those ships uh in in conflict situations and humanitarian assistance situations if if people needed a blood transfusion um when they were many days from from port um and and the difficulty of providing uh well all sorts of blood products uh, under those uh, circumstances but in particular the difficulty of providing platelets Uh, given their five to seven day shelf life um, and and when you're five to seven days from port that's obviously not going to work if if you're drawing on a conventional blood supply civilian blood supply Um, so uh, he developed uh, a technology that used uh, dimethyl sulfoxide which is a a compound that's been used uh, in cryopreservation uh, in 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 medicine and and other branches of science uh, for some time um, to stabilize the 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 platelet membrane during the process of, of freezing if you just freeze the platelet it fractures the platelet membrane and, and that destroys the platelet um, uh, and then to reconstitute initially in saline they they were using saline and uh, and then subsequently through um in vitro experiments that they did uh, demonstrated that uh, reconstituting in plasma led to a, a better platelet product, um, and and then they went on to do uh, one one small clinical trial which demonstrated to, in fact superior efficacy um, of that frozen platelet product. But they didn't really do enough clinical research um, back then um, to to lead to. Uh, fda registration uh and, and therefore um, not enough uh, for, for this technology to be adopted worldwide so so there it sat and in fact it, it was never really uh adopted by the u.s navy uh, as a as a mainstream technology uh, they adopted frozen uh, red cells uh, which is a different conversation entirely but the platelets uh, were never thought to have enough clinical evidence to implement on on the ships um, so they really just you know sat as a bit of a curiosity um until the Uh, until the Dutch military uh, started deploying initially to Bosnia uh, in in the end of the 90s uh, and then uh, to uh, Afghanistan uh, after 2001. And the Dutch military uh, had a peculiarity uh, in that uh, uh, Dutch society uh, felt that it was uh, inappropriate to compel uh, their soldiers to be tested for HIV. And so, unlike the armed forces of uh, much of the world, including our own, uh, they felt uh, that it was uh, not appropriate to rely on walking donors uh, in the deployed military environment to to donate whole blood um, as a source of platelets Um, and that's actually still the way um, that uh, most militaries um, provide a platelet supply in in a deployed environment. They don't fractionate the platelets, they just take whole blood and and that is the source of platelets. Whether that's good is another question entirely, but that's the way it's done. Um, So the Dutch decided they couldn't do that because they couldn't do the HIV tests on the donuts. So so they looked at this technology, they said, well, look, there's a bit of evidence for this. Um, And in the absence of any alternative that's acceptable to us, uh, we will just do it. Um, So they implemented a frozen platelet blood bank, uh, which is where we came across it. Uh, in their deployed hospital in Afghanistan, that's where I have transfused frozen platelets uh, when I deployed there in uh, two thousand um, and you nine. Know, and it's not to say this was a dangerous thing. There, there was um, quite a bit of preclinical evidence um, suggested that the the platelet phenotype changed a little in the process of freezing and thawing. If anything, it became more uh, hypercoagulable. Um, changes the receptor expression of, of, of some of the receptors on the platelet membrane, but by and large, the platelets remain fairly similar um, when they're reconstituted Uh, and there was uh, this one small clinical trial of 73 patients uh, that the us had run uh, back in the 90s that as i say, showed uh, some evidence of safety and and efficacy so so the dutch experience of of more than a thousand patients transfused frozen platelets um, was was positive um, but it wasn't it wasn't a trial so here we are having a discussion about how we might uh we might rectify that problem
0: So what are the benefits? Obviously, a prolonged lifespan of the the product is one benefit, but how much longer are we talking and are there other benefits?
1: Yeah, that's right um so so indeed it in, in, improves the uh the shelf life to well at least two years um and and in fact we're in the process at the moment of, of seeing whether that can be extended to four years using uh in vitro markers that uh the uh, lifeblood uh, here our partners in australia are in the process of uh, of assaying now, of course you can't just do that experiment today you've got to with the platelets in the fridge or the freezer for, for two, two to four years and, and then compare them at the end of that time. But we're, we're fairly confident that at the end of the four years, um, they'll remain uh, intact and, and displaying the same sort of receptor phenotype. Um, so that's the main benefit that um, you know, in the storage life. But that, that has a number of uh, sort of derivative benefits. One is um, that uh, the platelets will then be able to be supplied to many hospitals that don't currently have a platelet supply. So that's relevant to us in the military obviously, so there's difficulties in, in using fresh whole blood. Um, fresh whole blood is a conversation entirely, but there are some difficulties in providing fresh whole blood as a platelet supply. Um, but then in civilian hospitals as well, we're currently in Australia, we don't use any fresh whole blood. Um, uh, most regional hospitals, rural hospitals don't have a platelet supply at all. So uh, even if they don't see a lot of trauma, um, there's a lot of patients, not a lot, but there's certainly some patients who have catastrophic obstetric hemorrhage, gastrointestinal hemorrhage and so on, who you would like to give platelets to, but there are no platelets in the blood bank because of this short shelf life. So they would now, be able to to receive those platelets and the other big advantage is uh, in wastage Um, so despite the fact that there's often shortages of platelets including in big teaching hospitals um, just because of the short shelf life um, because of the the mismatch of supply and demand about 30 percent of donated platelet units are wasted because they expire Um, so this would stop Really, all wastage. Uh, you would freeze the the units before they uh, before they expire, and then there's some other um, smaller, um, you might say, hypothesised benefits. Um, Uh, A platelet transfusion, amongst all blood component transfusions, is associated with the highest risk of infection. Uh, So, uh, bacterial infections, about one in 10,000 units uh, transmits uh, bacterial infection at conventional platelet units. Um, And that's because conventional platelets are kept at 22 degrees on a shaker, and that's a perfect medium for culturing bacteria. Um, So, this, we think, um, will remove that that risk. and and possibly uh, in the process of freezing and thawing, uh, you, you get a kind of pre-activation of the platelet, and and so uh, that that possibly leads to better uh, hemostatic efficacy uh, with freezing platelets compared to conventional platelets.
0: Now, Are there any downsides, and particularly associated with this cryopreservative DMSO that you referred to a bit earlier?
1: yeah so that's one of the reasons that we need to do a trial um there are some theoretical risks um one is is associated with the the dmso um the the amount of dmso that comes with the platelets after they're reconstituted in the plasma is really quite small though about one percent of what someone receives uh in a bone marrow transplant so um although it's there um it's probably quantitatively insignificant, but we're still going to look for DMSO toxicity. And DMSO toxicity, well, you can certainly give enough of DMSO to really do harm, but the the type of toxicity that occurs in bone marrow transplant patients with very much more DMSO is things like nausea, headache, and sometimes flushing and a bit of hypotension. So we look for that, but we're not really anticipating seeing that. Probably a more concern uh, is that um, in in the process of freezing and thawing, you do get some damage of the platelet membrane and it forms um, microparticles, platelet microparticles, which are little fragments of the platelet membrane. And they uh, have a theoretical risk uh, of being Uh, deposited in the lung Uh, and if that happens there's a theoretical risk uh, of that causing an inflammatory response which could potentially predispose to acute lung injury or or ards that's not been seen in any of the animal models or 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 in the clinical study that's been done but it's something that we'll look out for and the other risk is that um, by being more uh, hemostatically active, uh, potentially we're inducing a prothrombotic state. uh, And that might increase the incidence of DVT. Um, Or we're giving these things to cardiac surgical patients, it might increase the risk of graft thrombosis after coronary revascularization. Now, um, we're giving these platelets to people who are bleeding and really, you know, bleeding to death is what we're trying to stop, um, and they're being titrated to effect. So, so we think that that is the, the main argument against this being a, a, an overriding concern. We're, we're giving just enough to stop someone bleeding to death, not so so much that we're pushing people into a prothrombotic state. But again, they're complications that we'll be looking for in the in the trial.
0: Michael, the use of um, these sorts of products is obviously predicated on the assumption that the more available platelets are the um the better the outcomes will be for patients how sure are we that this assumption is valid
1: again a, a really good question um one that actually you would think we we would know uh, about in, in medicine in general maybe surgery in particular and our trial the clip trial uh, is being done in cardiac surgical patients and in fact no one really knows quite what level of play that should should be transfused in in cardiac surgery or in in surgery in general. Um, But we do know a little bit about trauma um, and um, that is one of the main applications of, uh, I think, uh, this technology. If, if indeed we we demonstrate that the the frozen platelets will will work, um, and 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 uh, maybe that's worth going through just a little bit. We we know that trauma patients don't become thrombocytopenic very commonly. If, if we say thrombocytopenia is less than, um, say, platelet count of hundred, very rare to see a trauma patient with a platelet count of less than hundred. But we do know um, that when we Uh, do platelet function testing in trauma patients uh, almost always severe trauma is associated with significant platelet dysfunction so that's the first thing to say there is something wrong with trauma patients platelets and that possibly true in in heavy bleeding in, in surgical patients as well it's just never really been looked at. So there's something to fix that's the first thing why would we give platelets? Well there's something to fix. Then the next thing to say is well is there any evidence that there's, there's you know benefit from giving a platelet transfusion? No one's ever really done a proper trial but there's some observational studies that show uh, when you give massive transfusions to trauma patients if those massive transfusions have a high ratio of platelets to the other blood components, red cells and plasma compared to a low ratio of platelets. The patients who get the high ratio of platelets have a lower mortality. And and that's actually consistently true in a number of observational studies, including if people want to reference, um, there's a post hoc analysis of the proper study. I remember that was the one-to-one versus one-to-two ratio of red cells to to plasma. But some of those people got a lot of platelets and some of them didn't. And, And they went back in another paper and looked at that question did the platelets do any good and there was indeed a mortality benefit of getting more platelets so so yes um we think that there is a benefit in, in people who are heavily bleeding uh, of getting a platelet transfusion so so yeah we think all of this uh, is potentially a benefit for, for such patients
0: so, it's well known that red blood cells don't necessarily uh, have physiological function immediately after they're infused, mm. largely because of the 2,3-DPG metabolism. Yes. Do we know that platelets are effective immediately in terms of their pro-coagulation effect? To,
1: to a limited degree, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, so in, in animal models, um y- y- yes, that seems to be the case. Um and and in, in vitro studies of of these you know, human cryopreserved platelets, they they do form clot immediately. And in fact, they, they form clot more rapidly than conventional liquid-stored platelets. So the answer to your question is yes. D- d- they're they're more hemostatically active. Do they have normal function? That that's a little bit more complicated question because platelets just turns out do a lot of things. Um, that they're, they're not this metabolically inert sack of stuff that just has the coagulation cascade uh, occur on its surface. They they um, you know express uh, receptors on their surface. They discharge particles from vesicles and so on. And it's a, definitely an oversimplification to say, all of that just works normally. I, I'm almost certain it does not. Um, and we don't actually fully understand which bits of that do work well and which bits of it do not. Uh, but what I can say is they form clot more effectively than uh, even conventional platelets. So that's a good question. Though.
0: Michael, you're um, obviously running the CLIP uh, program along with a number of other learned colleagues. Can you tell us about that program of research and what you're exploring?
1: yes uh and and you make a good point so um so although i am the chief investigator in in the clip uh, studies um, uh, which started way back in 2014 uh, when we started thinking about our pilot uh, trial um, we're we're very much in partnership with lifeblood um, who, who produce all blood components in in Australia Um, and New Zealand colleagues uh, are running uh, CLIP New Zealand uh, in collaboration with their New Zealand blood service Um, and and the two trials are are running in in parallel. Uh, The New Zealanders ran their own pilot study which was published uh, last year Um, and you might say well why, why aren't you running just one big Trial that was uh, an initial um, intent, um, but the New Zealand blood service uh, for good reasons uh, manufacture their frozen platelets in a slightly different way to to the uh, to lifeblood here in Australia. Um, and Uh, fundamentally we weren't able to get the two blood services to agree to manufacture the platelets in the same way. They both had their reasons to continue to to do it their own separate ways. And we thought about running just one one trial uh, with two different manufacturing processes. And then we thought, gosh, if we were reviewing that paper, uh, what would we say? <laughs> and we'd say, well, that was ridiculous. How could you possibly have one trial of two different products? So, so what we've decided to do um, is run the same trial, same protocol, same number of patients, same outcomes, everything, um, in duplicate in Australia and New Zealand, um, and then at the end of the study, um, which will probably be published separately. Then New Zealand is separate to Australia, but we haven't firmly decided that yet but what we have decided to do is, is look at an individual patient data meta-analysis which you can talk about a bit at the end um, putting those two results together um, to see if there's any difference in clinical outcomes between the two methods of, of producing platelets if there's not um, it's a little bit more complicated to make the platelets the new zealand way um, but it's easier for the hospital site to reconstitute the platelets the new zealand way and so um, probably what it will boil to is if there's no difference in clinical outcomes um, well it'll be up to the blood services but probably what will happen is it'll end up being done the New Zealand way but that kind of presupposes equivalent clinical outcomes if I knew that was the case well, we wouldn't have to do the study so, so that's why why, why are doing two separate studies but anyway so to get back to answering your question all this started back in 2014 Uh, We we, we ran a pilot study um, using uh, College of Anaesthetists funding, which we're very grateful for. We we enrolled uh, 41 patients, uh, randomised them to frozen platelets or or liquid stored platelets. Um, uh, We found that their bleeding uh, after cardiac surgery uh, was uh, equivalent over the first 48 hours. uh, there were some trends uh, towards superiority in the frozen platelet group. They they seemed to need less uh, blood uh, products transfused, um, and they needed to go back to theatre less if they got the frozen platelet. So that kind of fitted with the uh, results that had been seen in that earlier uh, US study, um, and and there were essentially a negligible incidence of adverse events like dbt and, and and no one had a myocardial infarction post post-surgery and so, on. so that was all quite reassuring so on the basis of, of those results we, we went to the NHMRC and asked for enough money to, to do what we think it will be the definitive study clip 2 um, which uh, will recruit uh, we, we think about 800 patients um, needed to consent um, to, to uh, have about 200 or 202 uh, actually be transfused because we don't know who who will need a transfusion before they actually have their surgery we need people to consent beforehand so we think about 25 percent of the patients we think are high risk uh, will ultimately need a platelet transfusion and we need about 202 um, to be uh, sure enough uh, that the patients who are getting the frozen platelets are, are having non-inferior outcomes we talked about that in a tick non-inferior outcomes to the ones who are getting uh, the liquid stored platelets Um, and and as i say australia compared to new zealand and uh, it's worth saying too um, that uh, uh, all of this is of military significance, it all started with the military. Uh, I I personally am funded by the the Australian Defence Force to do this research, they they pay my salary. Um, And so we shared our our protocol with our military colleagues in the United States, uh, and they have funded a research group uh, in the US to to actually use our protocol um, to to run the same trial uh, in the US. So we've got a third group that's doing the same thing. uh, And they also have agreed to uh, be part of this individual patient data meta-analysis at the end. we're kind of getting three studies uh, in one.
0: Michael, you said that you're looking at high risk uh, cardiothoracic patients. Um, how do you identify um, ahead a of the trial who is high risk?
1: Yeah, in, in the pilot study, we used a, a red cell prediction score um, that looked at things like preoperative hemoglobin and complexity of surgery and so on, because um, that was the best thing there was. Uh, and that did indeed identify people who ultimately had about a 25% incidence of platelet transfusion. Um, but we thought we could probably do better in our um, definitive study. So we looked at the uh, cardiothoracic surgery database uh, in Australia. There are collaborators in the, in the study. Uh, and one of my PhD students, Andrew Flint, and- AV medical officer, uh, did this as one of his PhD projects, um, looked at, at that database to, to see if we could derive a, a risk score, uh, which we've called the Accept score, the Australian Cardiac Surgery Platelet Transfusion Score. Uh, so it, it's come up, but it's entirely data-driven. It's not what we hypothesized, but uh, it's identified some features that, that make people particularly at the high risk of having a platelet transfusion. So uh, they are age uh, needing uh, some form of renal replacement therapy, including chronic dialysis, uh, surgery for infective endocarditis, um, requiring support for shock of any form preoperatively, uh, being on clopidogrel preoperatively, needing valve surgery, and so on and so on. There's a few things you get points for. Uh, interestingly, uh, having a high BMI is protective for getting a transfusion. I can't tell you why, but anyway, that's protective. Um, and so, if you get enough points, um, then. Uh, that's the the qualification for the study. But unlike um, virtually every other study that I've done in intensive care, um, although that is one way of getting in, Um, The other way is just for the clinician to think that you are at high risk uh, of needing a platelet transfusion. And you might say, well, that's a bit wishy-washy. You're never going to be sure uh, of the inclusion criteria. No, no, no trial has ever just used clinician gestalt. And the reason that we've done that um, is that if uh, we we do show that frozen platelets are effective, um, we're not just going to use them in accept score positive high risk cardiac surgical patients we would use them in well all cardiac surgical patients who need a platelet transfusion but probably all bleeding surgical patients Um, and so to to have such a narrow definition uh, in the trial, it doesn't really make much sense if, if you're intending to apply the results of the trial more broadly uh, uh, after we get the results, so, so that's the reason for that. The only reason to use a, a risk score at all um, is so that we don't waste a lot of time consenting people who almost certainly are never going to get a platelet transfusion.
0: This ends part one of this engaging interview with Michael Reid, Chief Investigator of the CLIP project. Join us next episode for part two, as Michael explores the structure of the CLIP study and the challenges of running a major clinical trial.